Hey, y'all. It's Io here with Noodle Nook, and I'm so excited today to be here with Ms. Kaylee, who's going to give us some insights and ideas about how to effectively set up a special ed classroom. I know I get tons of people who ask, what's the best way to set up? Is there a layout that's better for students with significant disabilities? So hopefully today we will get some insight and ideas of how you can effectively set up your classroom so that it works the best for you and for your students. How are you today? Great. How are you? Oh, you know, surviving quarantine life. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm so glad to, well, I'm glad to get to talk to someone else, but I'm surely glad I get to talk to you. Yes, and about our favorite thing, special ed. I, well, you know, when we get a couple people talking about special ed, it, it gets pretty deep, but my listeners and my viewers really love insights from actual teachers in classrooms because I think it really gives you um, an opportunity to see a classroom that you wouldn't otherwise get to, to see and talk to an educator you wouldn't otherwise get to talk to. So I'm super excited to get some information out to everybody. Can you start by telling us about yourself? Okay. Well, I'm from Chicago, Illinois, originally. I uh, moved to Texas uh, for a teaching position. I graduated in December 16th and then January 2nd, I moved out to Texas and started my first day teaching mid-year. I, yes, I actually interviewed over the phone for that position. I hadn't met anyone from that campus. The only thing that I ever, I just had my husband kind of, you know, reach out and ask, oh, have you heard about this campus? Have you heard about this place? Um, and then I accepted the position and it was wild. <laughs> Wow, that is so crazy. I also started mid-year in my first teaching job, and I can tell you that that is hard. It is so hard. It was a lot, especially, I mean, back then I really didn't think I was young, um, but looking back, I mean, I was, what, 20, 21, 22 years old, moving across the country and starting a new position, living in a new place. It's just amazing how it all works out. Wow. Well, I'm sure that your campus was glad to have you when they made a great choice when they picked you up. <laughs> so now, did you, you actually have your degree in education? Do you have yes. a master's as well? No, um, hopefully soon. We're working on that. I, was, <laughs> I wasn't sure. Um, so tell us about how um, this educational journey has impacted you. Like, did you know when you were young that you were going to be a teacher? And did you always know you were going to work with students with special needs? So I feel like, I, I, I love this question. Um, I always wanted to be a teacher. I, I, I swear I was born to be a teacher. I used to, um, I had a classroom in my basement that my dad set up for me and I would go to school and then I would come home and teach my two younger sisters. And I think that's why they're so, um, they're both very successful in their educational careers. And I really truly think it's just because, you know, I taught them early. I started off early. Um, and my of course, young, of course that's why. <laughs> my youngest sister, she was always um she was wasn't um the most easy student. She was always challenging with I guess what we would call behaviors and um she was just really fun to work with. And then my mom, um, growing up, she would care for a woman named Joyce. And Joyce later on I learned head down syndrome. At the time growing up, I didn't see a difference with Joyce. I just, Joyce was fun. Joyce played games with me. Joyce and I would hang out. We'd go to the mall. Um, she would laugh at my jokes. She'd watch my shows with me. Um, so I really, Joyce did not, 
it didn't hit me till I was in college, probably, you know, maybe more high school that, you know, Joyce did have a disability. She had an intellectual disability and um, that at the time we might have been, why we were so close is, you know, we had the same things in common and I didn't really understand that until I got older. And then once I was in high school, I had the opportunity to give up my study hall to help out in what we would call our life skills unit. I um, went to a small high school. So we had um, a life skills unit and it was a self-contained unit. It was, the, the students did not rotate. Occasionally they would go out um, to other classes, but for the most part, they were in the classroom. And as a high school student at the time, that just really broke my heart because I didn't see a reason why. Um, I didn't, mm. I didn't understand why, you know, why, why couldn't, you know, so-and-so come to study hall with me? Why, you know, why are you, why do you have to stay in here? So I went to my counselor and I kind of took it upon myself to see if there was a way that I could get into this classroom and help out. And just from that moment on, I was like, whoa, you get paid to do this? This is your job? Like, <laughs> I want to do this. And it was just from that moment that I, I knew that life skills is where I needed to be. And then specifically high school. I really, I love all life skills, but high school, there was just something so magical about it. That's, that's awesome. Like you knew, you've always known you were going to be a teacher, which mm -hmm. I love, but I also love that you've had some very impactful moments in your uh, educational journey that have really brought you to teaching students with significant disabilities like that is your journey that's your passion that's your jam i love that so now i feel like the next question is not really a good question because i'm going to ask you what your passion is with education within education but i feel like i might already know the answer <laughs> yes it's well i guess it's truly yeah. it's, it's life skills and it's just um bringing authentic experiences to these kids and bringing purpose and and um meaning I oftentimes when I bring my ideas to people and they kind of look at me and I just will answer well why not what's why not tell me give me your reason why not has it been done before and um it's really amazing what once you can put you know these kids in certain situations and how they can thrive and you would have never even known that completely I completely agree well so let's talk about how you have really um how you started setting up your classroom and how that's evolved over the time that you've spent in, in life skills classrooms before you were in a teacher, before you were a teacher and since becoming a teacher. Um, we'll start by telling us about your very first classroom. How did you set that up? Oh, oh God, chaos. No. <laughs> chaos. I didn't even mean, I didn't even mean to at the time. Um, but again, it was a situation where I was coming in January, mid-year January. I didn't want to step on anyone's toes. I had already three very strong established paraprofessionals in the room um, who made it clear that, you know, they, I was the teacher, but they were in that room. And um, I just really wanted to go in and try to come in with an open mind and show them that I'm really here for the kids. And so the setup with that is I was really overwhelmed. I was handed a stack of IEPs. I was given the old schedule I was reviewing it and I was like, oh my goodness, no wonder this poor teacher left mid-year. The way that this is set up is, it's chaos. <laughs> um, and it just boiled down to little things that were done in the IEP that were agreed on and um, that weren't exactly realistic to uphold. But since it was in the IEP, I, I had to make it work in that time. I had to find a way to, to buckle down and make it work. And um, 
what I ended up doing is just taking that first week to follow the schedule that was in place. And then I just sat there and I just document, I wrote down everything that was happening at every time I just scribed, I documented everything. I would know, Oh, this, this isn't working here. Let's see where we can um, move it around. It got to the point where I even printed out a huge table, like the size of me and had to um, just put each kid's name and then write down each thing that they needed from their IEP and their schedule. And that's how I kind of had to create it that way. It was a mess and I don't recommend it, but it's what I had to do to get by um, in January. Now, when I came well, back and in there's the fall- there's a couple things here too. You know, when you start mid-year, you do kind of have to come and walk in the shoes that somebody else has already, has already been wearing. Like, it's hard to come in and change everything because that can have a negative impact on the students and the staff. But the other part of that is it's hard when you're a brand new teacher or a first year teacher walking into a classroom and you have support staff that have been doing this for a while and you have to try to establish a good relationship and a working relationship with people who've been walking the walk and talking the talk long before you walked in the classroom. Oh yeah, and um, very sweet ladies. Uh, they were so supportive of me and understanding of my situation moving you know, across the country. Um, but it did take some time that I had to show them, hey, I, I do know a little, I do kind of know what I'm doing. Uh, just give me a chance. We came back in the fall. Um, it was nice because I was able, I already had that little time established with my students and the paras. Um, by that point, they, they trusted me more. So when I came back with the fall with my ideas, um, which were station rotations, I wanted to implement those in the class. They had not had stations ever before. It was a whole foreign concept. Um, so when I came to set the stations up, it, it really was starting from scratch. I mean, I was teaching you know, paraprofessionals how to run stations. I was teaching our, our little students how to run stations. This was in the elementary room at the time. So I don't know if we actually truly diligently did stations, but we rotated. We were rotating. We were, <laughs> we were kind of moving. So what worked, what for you in doing station rotation model, what worked for you and what didn't work? So with the, um, with the elementary kids, I found it was, um, hard to run stations because kids were being pulled, it was a K through five classroom. So the schedule, you know, one student was being pulled for music for, you know, 45 minutes here. And that might've been our ELA time. And then we're moving on to math. Then these two students, they might have to go to PE, but so-and-so is back from, you know, his out class. So it was really hard to do the stations um, and make sure that each student was getting each subject. Um, and it wasn't until um, I really went to the administration to, to show them the schedule. Hey, isn't there something we can do where we can try to, you know, break it up where we don't have someone out of the room every, every time. time I'm trying to teach something. Yeah, and I love that you took that in a schedule with some notes and some feedback to your administration to see if they could adjust it. Because a lot of times, and, I, and this is met with no offense, they have no idea what's going on in our classroom. All they know is that all of the really special kids are in there with their teacher and everything is fine and they don't understand the nuances of trying to do large groups and small groups and manage personal needs and social and emotional needs and academic needs all at the same time. Oh, I would definitely, anytime you go to your administration, come with some sort of hard proof 
that this is what you need or this is what you see. It's, I don't, I don't mean this bad poorly on administrators, but sometimes it's what they also need to bring to their higher up. Sometimes I think that it's in my administrator's hand and I don't realize that it's maybe two steps above her. <laughs> <laughs> completely true, completely true. Well, so out of curiosity, when you were setting up your stations for that very first classroom and you were getting started as a very first year teacher, because I know we have a lot of people who start their first year and even that, you know, they finish their first month and they still feel like, they can't get everything going. They can't get it all figured out. What you have to do is, and it's something that I'm still learning, um, is you you can't be hard on yourself. Um, at that time, I truly felt like I was doing everything wrong for these kids. That I was the worst teacher that they could have hired for this position. I was so hard on myself. And then, you know, it wasn't until summer that I kind of looked back and I was like, wait, we did awesome things. We did do something. There was some sort of difference. Um, you know, so-and-so might have not had their shoes on the whole time, but hey, they they read that passage. Um, it was really I looking back. <laughs> but it's true. You just, you know, you're always your toughest critic and you don't, um, as special ed teachers, it's so hard to see the difference that we truly are making in the moment. It isn't until we step away and see the overall big picture. Yeah, because the steps are so small with our students. You know, it's not like you're going to do an activity or skill and then see it, you know, right away be able to see results. Sometimes it takes days or weeks or months to see change. And you have to have a little bit of forgiveness for yourself that you're, and understand that you're not going to be perfect. You're, there's no perfect. <laughs> you're you're going to come in and you're going to do the best that you can with what you have at the time. And hopefully you'll ask your students to do the same, the best they can with what they have at the time and move forward together. But if you think you're gonna come in and be a Pinterest perfect teacher your very first day or week or month, that expectation is not realistic. And I think that's what I truly felt is um, I had all these ideas, these wonderful ideas on my board, my Pinterest board, and I would just come in with this magical paintbrush and swipe it across my classroom and and it didn't happen in case you're wrong. It, it doesn't work that way. It, um, it really, really does. <laughs> Did you make any changes between your first year and your second year with how you had your classroom set up? So what I found is um, we were, so we were labeling this class life skills and we were advertising to parents life skills, but I wasn't doing that. And that wasn't going on in the room the way it was set up. And um, so when I came back in the fall, I readjusted our schedule um, to weave in more functional activities throughout our day. Um, it seemed like I was trying to make such like a concrete time, like this is only when we're working on functional skills. And I needed to let that go and let it naturally flow into our day. And there were so many authentic moments that would pop up and um, just using, you know, stepping aside and being like, okay, math can wait, let's address this. This is something yeah, that's and I, and I love that, that, you know, when we try to define our time as like, this is functional time and this is academic time, it's not really the way that life works. And we do need to find this way to kind of combine the two skills at the same time, because that's what meets our students' needs when we hit that post-secondary environment. Right. Like we were um, having, uh, we had a set schedule bathroom break throughout the day. And of course that was, you know, to keep the kids on a schedule, um, but what happens if so-and-so needs to use the restroom? And I'm like, 
not the time. It's not time to do this. That this is not our our bathroom time. And um, so it was really me letting go of, I guess, my control. I, I worked so hard to, to, it was kind of almost counterproductive because here I was, I was working so hard to gain control. And then it got to the point where it was almost too much that I needed to take a step back and say, okay, now we're almost too structured now. Uh, yeah. And I always uh, give this analogy to people when they're talking about that. It's like, sometimes we feel like when we come in, it's like we're driving a school bus. We're in the driver's seat. All the kids are going to get on and ride behind us. We're deciding where we go, when we go, how everything happens. And it's like, ooh, it's not really right. Every kid should be driving their own car. And you're the one kind of laying out the, the map for them and laying out the directions and the, the way that they should get to where they're going. But they have to drive their own car. Right. I'm just, I'm building the road as we go. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes you're doing traffic control, right? Like you're standing in the middle of the road, like, please go this way. <laughs> Yes, yes, or please stop, don't go any further. <laughs> but it is, it's their journey and they have to be in charge of it. They can't be passive in it because that is not what produces the best outcomes for students. Well, and it's never too early to start teaching, teaching our kids to advocate for ourselves. I found that um, a lot of times I was in the elementary room speaking for the kids when they were perfectly capable of speaking for themselves and voicing um, if they liked or didn't like something and it was almost like I was taking their voice away um and that's you know I, I didn't mean to do that looking back I wasn't doing anything wrong it was just um I just viewed them as little itty bitties and I was like oh no 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 I got this for you we, I got it it's not not time yet you don't have to do this yet next year in middle school you'll get it but no the time is now contributes into this learned helplessness cycle where our students start to become disempowered in their in their day in their class in their environment and they just learn to be helpless like you know what if I sit here she's gonna do it for me so why even bother um, and it actually, it just amplifies the student's disability and in the long run really inhibits their ability to be functional and independent in their future environments. So this story, I will tell this with as much grace as I can, um, but I had a student in the elementary classroom. He played me. He played me. I started off and he needed assistance in the restroom. And I was, I, you know, I knew that was part of the job. I was well aware and, you know, I babysat before I, nothing, got it. So, you know, he asks me for help and I, I go and help him. And this has been going on for months at this point. And finally, I, it's time for the IEP. I, I call the mom and we're talking, I'm talking about functional skills and she starts sharing what he can do at home. And I'm like, wait a minute, I'm like, wait, what do you? Can you can you go back to, to what he does at home? And she's like, oh yeah, he's he can do this, he can do that by himself, he can do this. And I had to stop for a minute because I was like, wait a minute. So I go, this is going to be personal. I said, but is your son, you know, does he clean himself up at home? And she looked at, she thought I was a crazy woman because she was like, well, of course he does. Doesn't he do that there? And I'm just on my end like, oh, Kaylee. Okay, Lee Lord, <laughs> I have been, that, that yeah. child played me, he got me, but it was because I went in with the mindset that he was a helpless learner, and he took full advantage of it. Absolutely, and I think uh, I've Mark got Pam. a similar story in my environment too, but I think about it like this, if I came home from work one day, and I walked in, and all of my laundry was done and folded, 
And I looked around and I was like, oh my Lord, done it all this. Well, the next time there was a big pile of laundry, I might not do it for a couple extra days because hey, the last time it just magically got folded and done for me. So if I hold off, maybe that'll work again. And it's not because I can't do it. It's just because if someone else is going to do it for me, um, why would I not take advantage of that? And we do. We walk into the classroom like, oh, oh, we've got to be able to help. We want to make sure we're serving our students. We want to make sure their needs are being met. But sometimes we best meet needs by not meeting every need. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And you should have seen the look on his face the next time he needed to use the restroom. And I was not assisting him. (laughs) Oh, party's over. <laughs> but that story that always just makes me just just laugh <laughs> it completely does it completely does well in week two we have to learn how to kind of let our students be in control and I think that that's something that you almost have your challenge to do your first year because you're so busy trying to figure out how all this works and not not drown yourself but definitely when you start into your second year, did you feel like you were more empowered to let the students be in control? Oh yeah, definitely. And I think it was a lot of, um, I didn't want my kids to fail. And it was, I was taking a lot of that on my end and it's okay for the kids to fail. And it was me realizing that I don't, it's going to happen. And it's unfortunately, it's the nature of the beast and it's better to, to assist them with their failures along the way and help them cope rather than just covering it up or doing it for them so there's no failure at the start. Right, yeah, I mean, and, and ultimately, it gets a better outcome for the student. It, it's getting them an outcome that they can take into their adult living and adult life, so definitely. Um, so now, how did you apply that same concept as you moved into your third year and beyond? And how did you set up your classroom to be more um, more supportive of independence for students. So at that point, the end of that year, I transitioned out of the elementary classroom and I moved into the high school classroom. Um, when I, again, I was coming to a, a new classroom with a set paraprofessional who had been there for numerous years. Um, and when I first got there, she again showed me this is how it's, this is how it was done. This is probably how it's going to go. And Again, I did the same thing. I took it with grace. I said, oh, okay, and we tried it. And um, But I knew in the back of my head from my last experience that I need to start making the plan now. I'm going to watch her plan. I'm going to see how it goes down, but we need to start troubleshooting immediately. And um, so I let her, I, I sat back, I watched. I watched how she set the room up for that first week, and it was not working. It was too complicated. I... I didn't even understand the schedule. So how are my kids supposed to understand the schedule? Oh, I, I wish I had a picture. It was um, it was like a grid and it had all these numbers and you would like circle the number and that's what the student was supposed to be working on. And props to the teacher who set it up because apparently it was successful for her and that's okay. What works for you might not work for others. Um, but I also saw that it wasn't working for anyone. So it could have been a situation where it might have been working for that teacher, but it might have not been working for the room. And it's all about the overall room, not you as a teacher. Yeah, and there's two things here that I think are super important is that one, again, when you're coming in as a new teacher or a new teacher in a classroom, even if you've had experience and you're coming in to work with your support staff, if you come in with this, I'm the boss and you got to do what I say attitude, it can really set a bad tone for the remainder of your work relationship. 
So coming in with that grade and trying to see what, taking a minute to see what they've been doing so that you can acknowledge what's been working and that they put effort and thought into the process too, that will get you a little further in your relationship as you build a unity approach to the classroom. And the second part of that that I really enjoy was that, was that what works for one teacher is not going to work for everybody. And it's okay if the teacher down the hall or across the street or in a different building or that you saw on Pinterest does X, Y, and Z, X, Y, and Z might not work for you. Or it might work for you for a little while and then you get a new student or a student develops a new interesting behavior and X, Y, and Z doesn't work anymore. So or COVID happens. Yes, it will inevitably happen. So what they were doing though, at least um, when, at least this particular classroom, they had stations set up. They had three tables. There were three stations set. So I was impressed with that. That was a place to start um, where before it was, I, I had to, you know, set, reset the room to make the station rotations. And with stations, the setup is key. You have to have them spaced evenly. Um, and it's all about functionality because some, you know, some students are able, they're, they can walk. Some students have wheelchairs. Some some students are wanderers. They, you know, might oh, wander. Yeah. Um, so it was nice that, you know, at least in this, this room that the, the flow was already kind of there. It was more just me bringing the system to the flow. Um, so what I ended up doing to be successful with those stations is the kids had the pattern of rotating. They had that down. That was, and that's half the battle is just having the students yeah, rotate. Seriously. It really is. That's really, that's half the battle is just making, you know, when they hear the timer that they know we're moving on. So each class period had its own bin and in the bins there were folders. Each student had their own folder. Before um, there weren't folders and I don't really know where the papers were going. Um, so it helped me keep records because it was all in one, one consistent place. So I could easily, if, you know, there was a question, I could pull the folder and it's all there. But on top of the folders. Oh, and that's a really good tip for people who feel like they are not naturally super organized. Oh, and um, I'm not by any means. <laughs> I didn't want to say anything, but for in general, if you feel like you're not really organized or that it's easy for you to lose track of things, a folder system like this is really effective because it keeps everybody, all the students work in one place. And then with those folders in the bins, all of the classroom materials that you need in one place as well. So oh, yeah. you don't end up kind of losing track. Well, and it was awesome because at the beginning of the class period, I could just say, hey, so-and-so, go get first period. Go get the, and, and it was, it turned into that was someone's job. They would get the basket. They wouldn't get your folder for you, but they would at least have the basket out. Um, and then it turned into two where if, all, at one point, all the folders got messed up with the different class periods. So then it was it was a weekly job where we organized our folders every week, um, and it held the, had the kids have accountability as, as part of their stations. Um, it gave them ownership of the classroom. It gave them a sense of oh, if we're going to be successful, we need to have this in order because um, they did see when the folders would get messed up. Um, it wasn't chaos by any means, but things weren't smooth and they saw the difference they felt the difference and they didn't like it well and that's an adult living skill too i mean like if i don't process the mail as it comes into the house i miss bills or things get disorganized you you have to have some kind of organization and accountability for the things that you use every day as an adult living skill so it's important that we incorporate that in our classroom plan because 
there's no better opportunity to teach that in like a formal lesson. It's much easier to do that in these natural transitions and natural responsibility moments. Right. So then on each um each folder, which helped the kids rotate, um, they had I had like the color stickers like from garage sales that you would put on the, the sticker yeah. dots. Um, they're super cheap to find. They're you know I mean you probably have them around your house and. So what I did is I right. put these sticker dots on their folders and I grouped each student. I would look at, you know, different levels who would pair well. And um, we did that as a class, which was kind of fun. Um, we sat at the beginning of the class period and we would kind of, kind of brainstorm, you know, hey, who do you think you would work best with? And it kind of gave the kids a chance to kind of think and so-and-so might be your friend, but I might not work best with them. And we were able to have those conversations, which was actually really cool. And I didn't, I didn't think that we would be able to get there, but we did. And the students and were a part of that. you had a process. very diverse classroom. I mean, the needs in your classroom were very diverse. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so yeah. to, to do that is actually, you know, it's not maybe intuitive of what a, a teacher would think to do naturally. You know, let's ask the kids what they think. Um, in that kind of diverse environment, you might feel like, well, I don't want to do that. But again, you should know and be able to assess how you interact with others. And there are people that you might not want to work with. Our kids shouldn't be passive in the day. Having that piece of control can really help with the buy-in. Well, and I, something that was brought to my attention that one of our students brought is that they had been together since kindergarten. They have been together yeah. since kindergarten. And that's not something that, you know, a gen ed student Faces. A gen ed student, they move on to middle school. There's a big pool, a new friendship circle, and then you go on to high school and the pool gets bigger. But our students, they might get, you know, a new classmate every other year. And so that was, I wanted to take that opportunity to see, you know, oh my gosh, you guys have been together a long time. If, if so-and-so is really not making you happy, you're not going to learn the best. You're just going to be fixated on how, you know, this, they make me feel not good. So I don't, you know, you're, you'll be focused. And it also created a sense of community. Um, I had students who saw needs of other students and took it upon themselves to help them. They wanted, it created a sort of a culture in the room where that they wanted to help out naturally. And it wasn't, um, it wasn't a way, it was a, a it was a natural friendship in a way. It wasn't, like, oh, I have to help this person. It was, oh, you you don't have your, your blocks? I'm gonna go get them. Let me go get your blocks for you so you can count with us. And the community yeah, that formed. Yeah, we have those natural teachers, natural nurturers. We have those kinds of students in our classroom. And a lot of times they're not given the opportunity to really show that they have that characteristic inside of them because we control too much. And it gave me a chance too to teach them how to advocate for themselves in a way because our students are very blunt on how they feel sometimes. Um, so when we did our circle, there was one incident where he had one student had choice words about another. And it was an opportunity though for me to teach him that, hey, look what you did. He's crying, he's upset, you know, your your words, you're not wrong, but there's a way you can, you know, give your message. And, Absolutely. Um, and if you're a first year teacher or first set or even a second or third event, your teacher, and you're thinking about how to group your students, think about that, you know, that dynamic. And it doesn't have to be one way all day. It's not like you decide that they get to pick their groups and all day long they pick groups. No, you might decide 
that you want a group of students earlier in the day who are all at a very at a similar level working on a similar skill during some instructional time, but later in the day that they do get to choose their own partners so that they can have these social skills um, situations come up naturally and really develop those social skills. Because again, we don't have a really authentic way to teach that with our curriculum. Right. So uh, are there any items that you think are essential for a special ed teacher as they're getting their classroom set up or moving towards station rotation? Uh, laminator. Um, I love my laminator, Velcro. Um, Amazon's a great resource. I Again, I know, unfortunately, we pay for a lot of our supplies, but, um, and again, never, never laminate something until you know for a fact that that's like, what you want there's been so many times where i've laminated something and i think that that's the final project it's not, it's not. <laughs> and then i have to go back and and do everything again and um so really like be, think about what you're laminating um absolutely and those well, clear well yes. yes that's what you're just about to say like those awesomeness <laughs> yes and i um you can put velcro on the pocket sleeves i found um I, I made like a whole number system for one of my students where he could, you know, I could just slide the worksheets in and the Velcro is already there. Um, so they're pretty universal how you use yeah. them. I love putting Velcro tabs on the outside so that you can attach icons and answer things because yeah. it makes it so that you can reuse it so many more times than doing it as like every time you do this activity, I have to laminate, cut Velcro on new. Oh my gosh, it's just too much. And well, it's about it? easy. And then it turns out, like, if you're more, so the more prepared you are for your lesson and the more you know what you're going to do ahead of time, that's the huge, a big thing is just make sure, no, you don't have to know exactly every detail that you're going to do, but if you have, okay, we're going to count to 10 today, you have to make sure that you have that material ready, especially for our students who, um, you know, are nonverbal, who are non-ambulatory, who need that assistance if, if it's all prepared for you and ready to go um you're fine you're good Absolutely. it's going to be so much easier for you in the long run so yes so i would say one more thing that you didn't recommend but inadvertently recommended is a good timer <laughs> oh yes yes uh, i use um a lot of time i use uh you can just google classroom timers and i'll put it up on my smart board um they have like rockets all different crazy things um I think my the classroom favorite is like the bomb one because it'll like tick down and then like the kids are like oh it's gonna blow and it's just fun. We have yeah. fun. So those are really good recommendations. And now I'm going to um, pop up here with a a listener question. Excuse me. I have a question from Tammy and she says I've heard people talk about stations and special ed, but I don't understand how you make it work with all of the student needs. Any tips? And I feel like we've offered out a lot of tips, but for that teacher who feels like they've got kids who are really advanced and really basic, how do you make a station work to meet all of the needs of a multi-level classroom? Well, you might kind of look like an octopus at first when you're starting. Um, <laughs> so, but unfortunately we can't grow more arms. It's not, not a thing we can do. Um, so really what you can do is at my stations underneath each table, I have a bin um with drawers and there's just a ton of activities pre-made activities that the kids know how to do so at any point in time if i need to assist another student or spend a little more time i can just real quick reach in that bucket give the activity 
and real quick, work over here with the student, then check in, see how they're doing, and then, you know, keep moving around the table. Um, a lot of times I would have a student who would answer for the other students. <laughs> and um, which was great, I was like, oh, you got it, girl, go for it. Um, but what I ended up doing is I would, right before I was about to ask a question that I knew she knew, I would have her do a task for me. She'd have to, all of a sudden I needed like an ex, a red expo marker. The, the class would not make it if she did not find this, this specific thing that I needed. And she loved it because it gave her purpose. She was, she was helping me and it would always be something meaningful that I needed. It was never to just, there was always meaning and purpose behind it. I was never just sending her off on a blank mission. Um, but it gave her a chance to one, get up and stretch and move helped yeah. me out. She felt purposeful. And then it gave me a quick window to work with the kids who, who, you know, couldn't answer the question before she would answer. Absolutely. Well, so there's a couple things I heard you say, and I want to repeat those. One is to have a collection of activities that you know always work and have those at the ready because you never know when you're going to need them, whether uh, an activity that you were trying to do ended early, or if you really need to work specifically with a student because they're having academic challenges or a behavior, you've got something that you can fall back on. I think that's really important. But I wanted to ask you too, did you use independent stations inside of your classroom? I did, I did. Um, so the way it worked is there was one station for, it was the teacher station, so working with me. The middle station was our independent station, and then our third station was our paraprofessional station. At the middle station, it was either an old lesson that we previously worked on that I knew the students had down and we were just continuing it, it would be um, an activity that was pre-made um, that they already knew how to do. Or a lot of times I would use my technology. That would be the time for the student to log in on the computer on like Vizzle or whatever um, activity I had. So, Cami, I think if you're trying to make station rotations work in your classroom, you're, you're gonna wanna start with a plan. And the plan is not gonna work how you thought it was going to work, but you at least need to have one. You have to have an idea of what the students are gonna do in each of the stations. And, and what that, how those activities are going to be modified for each of the students. But the second thing is that you have to have procedure in place. If there has to be some kind of procedure as to how this is going to work. So Kaylee, I'm going to kick it back out to you. How did you establish procedures when you were trying to set up station rotations? How did the kids know what they were supposed to do? Well, I was fortunate with the, you know, the start of my classroom that the kids were already in that routine of changing from table to table. They knew when they heard the timer. Um, but we did a lot of practicing the first week. There really wasn't true academic instruction. It was really just practicing the procedures and getting the routines down. Um, I took that time to, um, I know I mentioned the independent table. Within that first week, that's when I taught at my teacher station. That's when I taught all of those independent games. Um, anything that I wanted them to, to do on their own, I took the time to teach them then. Um, Yes. And, then, and that is the perfect, like, that is the perfect startup. That very first week, procedures is what you're really working on. You might use some activities to help you teach procedures, but it's about the procedures. That independent table is just something super easy, non-difficult, low contact that first week. Because at your teacher station, you're really going to be teaching the independent skill or activity that you want them to work on as you go forward. So that's what that's all about. It's to set that up the right way. Otherwise, if you just throw the game in at the independent station and the students aren't sure what to do, it's gonna get bad quick. <laughs> get bad real quick. 
you'll have, you'll probably have a couple behaviors. You might not be at your teacher station too long. You might be intervening. <laughs> and I think too, that's another thing is uh, I found myself a lot. I was leaving my station to go help other stations. And it wasn't that anything was going wrong at the other stations. It was again, that control thing where I was like, oh, I just, I need to know what's happening. And it, it was really um, taking the step back to trusting, you know, my para's doing what she needs to at her station. I'm praying that the kids at the independent station are, are, are doing what they need to do. And you need to just focus on the three students you have in front of you right now. And Tammy, I would say that that would be a good tip for you too, is that if you do have that, like FOMO kind of mentality of having to know what's going on at all the other stations at the same time, just rest assured that if your students are getting 15, 12, 20, whatever, however long the station is, quality instruction minutes with you as a teacher in this small group, this intensive one-on-one -on -one type environment because you're working with a smaller group of students, if that is quality, it, it's okay that at the independent station they're not getting all of the tasks done. Or it's okay if your paraprofessional went off on a tangent and didn't finish all of the activity that you set up for them. It's okay because at your station, they got great instruction. Right. At the end of the day, you're the teacher. You're, you're the, you know, and I say it's all about the kids in your classroom, but at the end of the day, you're still the one giving the instruction. Yeah. And it needs to come from you. Yeah. So I love that. I love the idea of having a plan, even though the plan is not going to work. I love that you have to, you know, the next thing will be a follow up with the procedure and you've given some really good strategies to how to get that procedure started. So once you've had the plan and you have the procedure to go ahead and get in place, I think there's just a lot of fine tuning after that. But you have to know that that your classroom is not Pinterest and you will fail a few times or a whole bunch of times trying to get this all established. And sometimes, too, it's just giving it a chance to work. Um, I remember when I was student teaching, um, the classroom that I was in, I, I thought this teacher was crazy at first because, like, she, she was trying and trying, and um, she, was a, she taught for 40 years, and I was like, oh, my goodness, this isn't working. But by the second week, what she was doing, it worked. It just needed time. And that was a huge lesson to learn right away is to not try something. I immediately, like, I, I took that immediately to just, you know what, give your idea a chance. And of course, there are some moments where you try something and you know immediately, oh, this is not fine. <laughs> you, you will know. You will know when that moment happens. <laughs> yes, but that goes for behaviors, for your procedures. There's so many instances in special ed where it, it will work. It just needs a little more time to become effective. Oh, that's the best with behaviors when I, I, I tried it one time and it just, it didn't work, but it takes like nine oh weeks to God. try. Like it takes nine yeah, weeks. It, it takes long. Well, and it took, it took that kid possibly years to learn the behavior. You're not going oh, to learn whole life. a couple of days. Yeah. I, it's just, it, it's, it, that's not how behaviors work. So yeah. I, well, hopefully Cammy, that helped you out. Um, I'm going to jump over and ask you as we're getting ready to close out here. Do you, are, what are you reading right now? Do you have any book recommendations? Yes, I, this is actually one of my favorite books. Um, oh, okay. The Reason I Jump. Um, oh, nice. So it is, it's the inner voice of a 13-year-old boy with autism. It's written from his point of view. So he is a nonverbal student who lives in Japan. And with his um, ACC device, he actually communicated to write this book. He um, had someone oh, write God, a book. Um, and he answers different questions in the book. Um, like it says, 
and it's about um, you know students with autism. So one of the questions is, why do you ignore us when we're talking to you? And it's his answer and his thought process as to, I'm not in ignoring you, I'm not intending to, it's just how my brain works. And he goes through the different process um, of answering these you know, particular questions about some you know, autism quirks that we might think are quirky, but to a person with autism, that's just how their brain is and that's how it works. And he does an excellent job. Oh my gosh, job. I love that book. <laughs> Oh, it's my favorite. I love this book. <laughs> and it's a, it's a I have really, not read it. Like, it's very, it's a quick, easy read. It's, it's moving. And sometimes when oh. you're reading it, you will, um, you realize that you might be doing something that you think is great, but it's from a view of someone with autism and, and it's his way of, you know, Hey, this is helpful. If you do it this way, try it this way. I like when people talk to me this way. Okay, well, so I'm going to order that book today because I've not read that book and it sounds amazing, but for anyone else who, who's interested, can you give us the name of the book one more time? The Reason I Jump. So if anybody wants to connect with you or keep up with you in the classroom or ask questions, how can they do that? Oh, you can find my info in the show notes and please feel free to reach out. I love to make connections and, you know, talk to new people, bounce new ideas off. So I would love to, to chat. All right. Sounds good. Well, Kaylee, I super, super, super appreciate you being on the show today. And I really feel like you've given a lot of tips and strategies and even tools for teachers to use to survive and thrive in special ed, which is what we're all about. So thank you for being on the show. No problem. Anytime, anytime.